Hello and welcome to the Cinementalist podcast for Cinementalist.com. My name's Andy, sitting next to me is Floki, our bearded dragon mascot, and sitting opposite me is Liam. How's it going, my friend? Yeah, yeah, I'm good, man. Tickety-boo. Splendiferous. I'm okay. <laughs> I'm all right, Jack. <laughs> trying, trying to sort of uh, stretch out the answer because nothing of notes has happened. No, <laughs> normally at this point we talk about what's happened this week and the answer is precisely fuck all. Precisely fuck all, yeah. yes. I mean, yeah. there, there is no material for the front two minutes of this podcast. I guess we should just skip it. I mean, I suppose, suppose you could mention the Euros for a minute, but then you might not care to because I couldn't give a shit. We are in the middle of Euros mania. Yes, um, for the rest of the world, that's a big football tournament that uh, our country cares about very, very much because we haven't won anything in years. And we are now in the final versus a team that will almost certainly beat us. And um, that's immediately made some people turn off the podcast and I don't really care. I'm not really a fan of any football films, but I am a fan of football hooligan films. Mm -hmm. They're interesting, but obviously most England fans aren't hooligans. See, I don't mind watching like the international matches. I watch the Euros, I watch the World Cup, don't really care about league football or anything like that. I think we've got a really good team at the moment. I think we've played really well throughout the tournament and we're about to face the Italians, who are incredibly quick, incredibly dangerous, and will fall over if you fart in their general direction, to misquote Monty Python. So I don't have high hopes for the final on Sunday. But, you know, am I just being a miserable, cynical Brit? Probably. Well, that's, we come, our, that's our trademark. If we come back next week and we've won and the country's gone absolutely nuts, I'll be absolutely prepared to eat my words. I wish them all the luck in the world. But what annoys me slightly is this country does this weird nationalism thing. Whenever we start to do well in a tournament, and particularly when we get through to a final, which we haven't done in forever, there's this weird thing about, it's coming home, we're the best in the world, fuck yeah. That's the bit I hate. That weird tribalism sort of comes out. And I'm just like, it's just a game of football, guys, you know, enjoy it. They don't enjoy anything though, do they? Not even good movies. We come from a footballing town as well. So football is very, very hard to escape. But uh, yeah. yes. Oh, fuck, is it hard to escape? And you know, <laughs> there's probably plenty of people listening to this podcast that don't care about football either and want to talk about films and stuff. And we've ruined the intro for them as well. So we best get on with some film news, I suppose. Yes, what's going on in the world? I've of managed film to news. piss off football fans and non football fans at the same time. <laughs> that is quite a unique trick, isn't it? Well, we did say we were arseholes. <laughs> well, speaking of not much going on, actually, um, obviously, we do the film news every week. Some weeks there's lots of it, some weeks there's hardly any, and this is definitely a tight week. A tight week. Yes, because tight like a toiger. <laughs> because uh, normally I have like four or five articles queued up, and this week I have three, so this will be over and done with quite quickly. It just doesn't seem to be a lot going on of, of note or of interest, really, at the moment. Ah, uh, well. Um, first thing up, though, I have an article from the AV Club. Uh, the first trailer for the documentary Val, which covers the life of prolific actor Val Kilmer, has arrived ahead of its Cannes Film Festival premiere. Kilmer's career extends across time and genre, defined by iconic roles like Jim Morrison in The Doors, Iceman in Top Gun, and Batman in Batman Forever. In the trailer, Kilmer says he was the first guy he knew that owned a home video camera, and boy did he use it. In the thousands of hours of footage, there are appearances from fellow actors Kevin Bacon and Sean Penn, behind-the-scenes looks at his blockbuster films, and an intimate view of the man who spent his life in front of and behind the camera. Yeah, I saw a couple of things floating around Twitter about this. I thought, like, yeah, it could be cool. I mean, I, I do like Val Kilmer. I like some things with Val Kilmer. It does look really intriguing, doesn't it? Because um, Val Kilmer hasn't been well for quite some time. And I think that tied in with the fact, I know he's got a, a ranch as well. He's big into keeping horses and that kind of thing. So it's sort of half a um, an intentional reclusion and half you know, health problems and things like that. But it's, it's done a fantastic, um, you know, the Reddit uh, AMAs, the Ask Me Anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did a wonderful one of those where you really got like a sense of the personality of the man. And he's got a reputation as well, had a reputation rather, of being an actor that was very difficult to work with. Apparently he was very, very highly strung and some people loved him and some people hated him. So I'm actually really looking forward to this documentary. I think it'll be quite revealing. Well, my I'm not sure if I ever brought it up uh, as an extra take or not, but my favourite uh, Val Kilmer film uh, would actually be Spartan, the one uh, written and directed by David Mamet. I never saw that. Was that good? Very, very good. I really, really enjoyed it. And it's got a lot of mammoth regulars in there. William H. Macy probably being the other most noticeable one. But um, yeah, he's uh, essentially, he's like a sort of uh, an army uh, 
whatever fucking rank he is, but he also functions as a sort of cop slash private investigator for the upper army echelons, and he's got to investigate uh, this you know, like missing daughter of the president shit. But it's done in that very Mimetian furnishing with a lot of that um, brutish kind of hip dialogue, that cynical dialogue that Mamet does. And um, and like, yeah, I thought that Val Kilmer was great in it. And it's still, it's probably, it's, I mean, of all the films that Val Kilmer's done that are hardly anyone has seen uh, in, the, in the broader scope, I'd say that's one of them, which is a shame. Yeah, that's a cool recommendation, actually. I think I'll go and check that out. Yeah, um, yeah, it's an interesting movie, man. I'm really, really looking forward to this documentary film. I think that's going to be some amazing behind-the-scenes stuff. I mean, I'd love to see a behind-the-scenes on, like, Tombstone, for example. Yeah, yeah, my old man was watching that the other night. I watched a bit of it with him. The funny thing with Tombstone is I rewatched it a couple of years ago, and it's pretty corny in places. But <laughs> his uh, his performance as Doc Holliday really, really holds up. You know, he I sells think he's that the best entire thing film. About it. He really, really yeah. is. Yeah, he really latched onto that character. Do you remember the Saint from 1997? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was like, that was a favorite as a kid, but I haven't watched it since then, and um, I've been told it doesn't hold up as well. <laughs> but yeah, maybe love to not. revisit some of that nineties stuff. stuff. Really doesn't, does it? And yeah, Tombstone is yeah. actually really. Uh, it made me uncomfortably cringy at points. But Doc Holliday, that performance really, really does. It's very well written as well, very witty. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And he was also... It seems almost like it's a different yeah. script transplanted yeah. than what is otherwise quite a corny Western. He was also Bruce Wayne as well, wasn't he? He One was, yeah. yeah. This is a slightly controversial opinion, actually, but I like Batman Forever. I like it a short sight better than Batman and Robin. Oh, yeah. By <laughs> well. so it, it's by no means even in the upper echelon of, of really good Batman films. However, I have a soft spot for it. I think it's one of those films that I saw at, a, at an impressionable young age. You know what I mean? It sort of stuck with me. And the way it sort of went cartoony rather than dark. And you've got Jim Carrey mugging it up. And Tommy Lee Jones obviously hates every second of being there. I think even as a kid, I could pick up on that. It's, as a result, it's quite a fun film. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that their Two Face is actually one of TLJ's more iconic performances mm. because you can tell that uh, he's just doing this for a buck, yeah. and that just makes it really funny. Apparently, he hated Jim Carrey. I couldn't even stand to be in the same room as him. Like I am bad. not in the least bit surprised. I don't see their their personalities <laughs> meshing. Yeah, no, no. And I'll tell you what. And I know some people might not like this. I would much rather be sat down having a pint with TLJ. Yeah, I, I think would. I'd I think I'd be slightly terrified. I'm not intimidated by many people. I think I'd be intimidated by Tommy Lee Jones. There's a famous anecdote of because um, everybody hates interviewing Tommy Lee Jones because he is such a grump and he tends to give one word answers to whatever you're asking. Absolutely hates it. But there's one interviewer who um, was apparently recalling to a bunch of other interviewers her experience, and um, she was almost in tears because they said, "Oh, how did the interview go?" She was like, "No, he gave me one word answers to all of my questions, and he sat there the entire time." crushing walnuts with his bare hands. <laughs> <laughs> just freak the shit out. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I'll be really, really interested in this documentary anyway. And actually, I really, really hope we see some more Tommy Lee Jones content in the future, actually, because for all that's been said about him, he is an incredible actor and director too. So uh, I, lo I love the man. I mean, even, yeah, I mean, that Stormy Monday debut by Mike Figgis is not an amazing film, but Tommy Lee Jones does make it watchable through his, you know, just crass sociopathic um, mm. American gangster businessman in Newcastle thing going on. Yeah. You know, he's TLJ just he just works, man. I'm not I'm I've never been disappointed in TLJ. No, no, no for sure. Uh, this is an interesting one actually. This is from uh, flickeringmyth.com, although obviously there's a lot of people talking about this. Uh Deadline has been reporting that Christopher Waltz and Willem Dafoe will star together in the Western drama Dead for a Dollar from the Warriors director, Walter Hill. The film will see Waltz as a bounty hunter and Defoe as an outlaw who Waltz previously sent to prison. The film will take place in New Mexico Territory, Chihuahua, in 1897. Yeah, I think you, you said Christopher Waltz, didn't you? Oh, did I say Christopher? Sorry, Christoph. Yes. Christoph, yeah, yeah. Indeed. Yes, yeah, so this seems like it has potential. Christoph Waltz and Willem Defoe in a Western. I'm kind of sold immediately on that. Yeah, that sounds very interesting to me. I feel, I think I'll be um, using my limitless for that one. It's got a very long plot synopsis, actually. Would you like to hear it? Yeah, go on. If, <laughs> the synopsis is this. Multiple paragraphs. Max Borland, Waltz, a famed bounty hunter, is hired to find and return Rachel Price, the politically progressive wife of Nathan Prince, a successful Santa Fe businessman. Max is told she has been kidnapped by an African-American army deserter, Elijah Jones, and is being held for ransom in Mexico. When Max goes south of the border, he soon runs across his sworn enemy, expatriate American Joe Cribbins, played by Defoe, a professional gambler, sometime outlaw, who Max had tracked down and sent to prison years before. 
When Borland finds Rachel and Elijah hiding deep in the wilds of the Mexican desert, he discovers that Rachel has willingly fled from an abusive husband and the runaway soldier is, in fact, her romantic partner. Max is now faced with a dilemma. Does he return the wife back across the border to the man who hired him, or does he aid Rachel's bid for freedom and fight off ruthless hired guns and his longtime criminal rival? And who's uh, directing this? It's Walter Hill. Walter of, Hill. Of Sorry, Warriors you did, fame, you did yeah. say that. I did indeed. Well, yes. the Warriors, fucking hard time, Southern Comfort, 48 hours. I mean. Yes, yeah, some people are pitching this as potentially being a comeback for him in that he has done some recent films, but nothing really of note. Whereas this looks like it has all the potential to be something quite good. Well, I'll tell you what, man, if Christoph Waltz and Willem Dafoe are in a film that is done in the classic apex yesteryear style of Walter Hill, then I am all over that yeah, shit. Yeah, I think that's got a hell of a lot of potential in that. Because I, I mean, I, I love Walter, Extreme Prejudice as well. I, I love Walter Hill's top-notch films. They are just absolutely cracking entertainment. Mm. I adore them. So yeah, if this is um, if this is another notch under that specific belt, then I'm excited for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fingers crossed. Promising stuff. I yeah. And uh, my final article here, I just thought this was kind of funny. Uh, can launches with COVID confusion and in brackets, disgusting saliva tests that require festival goers to spit in a tube. Mm, yum, yum, yum. Yeah, this is an article Lovely. from Variety.com just when you thought the Cannes Film Festival couldn't get any classier. Uh, every single attendee <laughs> this year is going to have to spit into a tube before you're allowed in because there's been there's some weird um, COVID regulations in France at the moment in that you can come in, but you have to do a test. And to attend the festival itself, you have to do another test. And they had a big thing about they couldn't do the swabs because there's some elderly people attending and they're not the best tests, etc. So they basically reduced it down to every single person attending the Cannes Film Festival has to spit. And isn't that a lovely thought? It's a yummy, yummy thought. Have you done one of those COVID tests, by the way? Like the one up the nose and down the back of the throat? Probably should have done, but nah. Absolutely fucking horrible. Really, really horrible. I've got quite a strong gag reflex. No jokes, please. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I actually did one for this podcast to make sure that I was okay, you know, to record and everything. And man, just, I, I would have much rather spit in a tube anyway. I just think it's funny that we're going to see all these glamorous people walking the red carpet to, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, <laughs> just imagining the horror beforehand. I suppose it's better than the, uh, the old swab up the nose, but there you go. That's it for the news this week. That's, that is all that's happening. You imagine all these, but always any poor like French person doesn't want to go and don't know what's going on. Watching the footage out of context, they see all of these strange people arriving in their homeland, just going. Puh, puh, puh. Yeah, I, I, I don't think I'll be particularly happy about it. There's supposed to be the Olympics soon as well, and they're in Tokyo. And I was reading today that the Japanese people are really, really unhappy with the idea because the vaccine rollout in Japan has been really slow. There's only like 15% of the population have been vaccinated at this point. Really? It's way behind everybody else. Which is weird for such a staggeringly efficient country. Yeah, it surprised you know, me uh, as well. You know, Known for its efficiency. Yeah. Absolutely. In a compre- on a comprehensive scale, you know, yeah. Japan are just uh, one of the highest functioning societies in in the world. Yeah. So, um, but their, their infection rates going up currently, their death rate is going up currently, and they're looking at the government going, why are we letting a load of foreigners in at the I, time when it's, you know, that's only going to make things massively so I, worse? I mean, I don't know if you know better than me, but I, I would have thought that um, Japan's lockdown measures would have been phenomenally strict. I believe they were, yeah, although they're, they're starting to open up, but yeah, without getting too far into politics, because we are a film podcast, perhaps a little bit too early. I think, you know, if you're going to make all your festival attendees at Cannes spit into tubes yeah, and you're, if you're trying to do an Olympics in Tokyo and the people don't want it, only 15% of your population is, all this opening back up really, really soon. I mean, what is it? It's the 8th of July today mm. and Britain is supposed to open back up on the 19th, so 11 days away. And I'm kind of looking at it going, this all seems a little bit too soon. Do you know it's what rushed. I mean? It's a bit rushed. People are like, oh, well, what we're relying on is people using their best judgment when to use a mask and social distancing. Well, I live here and I can tell you, people do not use their best judgment. Yeah. I'm going to be stuck in the supermarket queue with 15 people front to back of me, coughing, spluttering, and I'm not looking forward to not it. Not wearing their masks because it's no longer being, going to be a legal requirement. Precisely, yeah. I just think this is all way too early. Yay! <laughs> yeah, we're just going to have to ride it and see what happens. This could be our last podcast. You know? <laughs> ride or die, bitches. <laughs> anyway, even if this is our last podcast, let's make it a good one, shall we? Liam has a couple of films to review this week. Or what are you going to start us off with? Well, I watched one of the latest Netflix offerings that I believe that you brought up on Film News not too long ago. 
This is um, Fear Street Part 1. Yeah, this is based on the R.L. Stein. R.L. Stein series of novels, yeah, to give it its full title, Fear Street Part 1, 1994. So, yes, so this is set in the town of Shadyside in Ohio. Now, Shadyside it has a counterpart named Sunnyvale. And as you can probably guess, over the years, Shadyside has been blighted by very horrifying happenings, people wantonly committing egregiously brutal acts of murder for no apparent reason at all. And the sat, the town's name. I mean, this is actually a real place in Ohio, by the way, Shady Side. Oh, is it really? I it's assume not, that was an R.L. No, Stein no, creation. It's not, no, it's not something that R.L. Stein made up. There is a place in Ohio called Shady Side. Fair enough. And in the context of R.L. Stein stories, it is a place where... In, in world, the place is synonymous with bad shit happening, horrible place, broken people, tragedy after horrifying splatterfest tragedy. You couldn't really get a better fucking name, could you? I don't know. No, what, to be honest. I don't know what the actual residents feel about their association with the, the fictional counterpart, but there we go. <laughs> so this op- right in. This opens with a young woman uh, working at a local shopping mall in Shadyside. And um, she's like one of the last people on duty and she's closing up her store and her friend who works in another stand across the way offers to give her a ride home. They're both pulling down the shutters and soon we see that she is being stalked around her little section by a, somebody in a... Basically, it's like a full Halloween suit. It's like a black suit with skull patterning all over it and they're furnishing a blade. And she is attacked... And she is brutally stabbed to death. And in her dying moments, she pulls off the mask and she sees that her assailant is her very good friend who she was just talking to not too long ago who offered to give her a ride home. But he looks completely pallid and dead behind the eyes and not himself at all. He is taken down in a hail of bullets by the local mall cop and both of them die almost immediately on the floor, and then it cuts to the fear street. So it's one of those openings. Dun, dun, dun. So then uh, we cut to Dina, played by uh, Kiana Madeira. And uh, Dina is a young woman who goes to high school in Shadyside, and she's part of the local cheerleading team. And uh, she is currently undergoing quite a lot of stress and heartache because she has recently broken up with her girlfriend, Sam, played by Olivia Scott. Sam moves away to Sunnyvale for domestic reasons. And um, she, Dina was always, she's always been a bit resentful that Sam never wanted to come out to their friends and family about the relationship they were having. And uh, yeah, so she's deeply resentful and bitter over Sam. Sam has also started dating a Sunnyvale jock, a rather nasty, contemptible prat named Peter, who um, openly shows contempt for shady side and says like, oh, you know, like your town has so many tragedies. When it's when it's a tragedy every week, it's not a fucking tragedy. It's a fucking joke. You know, like you guys are just all losers and freaks. blah de blah de blah A lot of animosity between the two places. Well, the two um, teams after this football game they have, um, they get into an accident after a prank gone wrong and they, like, they their respective vehicles crash and Dina's ex, Sam, rolls out of the car and she um, stumbles on top of this weird little patch in the surrounding woods and suddenly this horrifying bright red-tinted hallucination just flashes um, in her mind's eye. It's very, very strange. And... Um, after that, they're you know they're having an argument. They're recouping. Sam gets put in the hospital. Dina goes back home, you know, telling her brother Josh what happened, and like her also her other friends, Kate and Simon. Play Simon's uh, played by that Fred Hessinger kid. He was in that horrible woman in the window that I mentioned with Amy Adams. Oh yes, yep. he was the weird kid that comes by. And um, Simon and Kate, Kate's played by Julia Raywald. Like Simon and Kate are essentially they're like the two kind of lovable, goofy best friends who, like, they have a little drug sideline going on, but they're a couple of good kids, really. It's that sort of shtick. And um, essentially, while Dina's trying to get over her heartache and also this new tumultuous event that has landed her ex in hospital, she notices the same weird skull-masked Halloween freak that was in the opening of the film standing outside of her house. And she thinks, oh, great, one of these Sunnyvale pricks is here to terrorise me. 
but it's not one of the Sunnyvale pricks. And soon, her and the gang find out that the events, the, the events that open the film and the events that are currently turned their way can be traced back to a supernatural blight that has loomed over Shadyside since the 17th century. And they have got to scramble to find out what the core of the mystery is and how they can stop it before loads, loads more gory, sadistic, horrendous things keep happening to the town's pitiable population. So, Fear Streets. Um, it's a moderately entertaining supernatural slasher. First of all, Fear Street Part 1, 1994. Watching the trailer and hearing your initial description, which admittedly was the first time I heard about it, I was looking forward in sort of cinematographic and soundtrack terms to something that really evoked the 90s in that retro way, kind of like the, the in the manner that Stranger Things does for the 80s. And in fact, a lot of retro wave slash synth wave media contemporarily yeah, does. Yeah, so I think 1980s. I made that assumption as well. Yeah. yeah, well, it doesn't really. I was I was hoping for that real 90s kick when it, you know, it would really um, put you front and centre in some sort of, you know, heavily 90s aesthetic with a pronounced soundtrack and with the fashion, something that really, something that maybe made you feel like you were back in, you were back in Scream territory again. I mean, I know Scream came out when I was fucking like eight years old, but I still watched it in the 90s because I've said a million times before, I've watched plenty of things I shouldn't have in the 90s. <laughs> and I was just, you know, I was hoping there was going to be heavy use of, Things like landline phones and maybe, you know, a more heavy emphasis on more 90s video games or, you know, 90s popular music and just not more 90s fads. I really hoped that there was going to be something more of a transportative feel to it. And there wasn't, unfortunately. So I was a little bit disappointed in that. There are some pretty, like, cool and freaky moments in it, though. There's a lot of, like, with the film's antagonist, which I won't give away too much of detail-wise, there are some cool moments of suspense. There are some nice little fun, freaky moments. There are, you know, there is imbued with sequences that do put you on edge. It is bestowed with the fortune of, a, you know, having its finger somewhat on the thumb pulse. There are moments there where you do, oh shit, like, what are they going to, what the fuck are they going to do now? What the fuck is this? How does this tie into this? Jesus Christ, you know, this is quite freaky deaky in that sort of bubblegum popcorn factor manner. But really, None of the focal characters are actually that. When I say not likable, I'm not suggesting that a film has to have likable characters for me to enjoy it because I, plenty of my favourites are littered with horrible scumbags. But none of them ultimately, none of them just made me give that much of a shit about them, even for a tongue-in-cheek you know, slashy-dashy bubblegum horror that's essentially just made for a bit of mindless entertainment, but, you know, to put the willies up here for that added vicarious thrill. No, I didn't really give too much of a shit about how they ended up. But, um, you know, but it leads into the sequel at the end credits. So, essentially, with Fear Street, it was kind of fun. Didn't really do anything I hadn't seen before. I, what I'm hoping is that um, the sequel actually gives us more of a reason to give a shit about this franchise. I know they've also got a third instalment on the way. Perhaps getting into the second one and then the third one, everything ties up. Because to be ultimately fair to it, this is part of an, an announced trilogy. So I am keeping that in mind. Yeah, so you got um, 1978 and 1666. Yeah, the second Coming one. very soon as well. This is the, yeah, sounds like from your review as well, it seems to be the most interesting thing about Fear Street. Is there seems to be some sort of distribution experiment on Netflix's part. In that um, all three of these films are going to be like two weeks apart from each other in terms of release dates. So the next one's coming very, very soon. And the third installment coming very, very soon after that as well. It sounds like from what you're saying, it seems it didn't seem particularly rooted in the 90s. 1978, you would imagine, will be much easier to do in terms of rooting it in the 70s. And then 1666, presumably it's going to go full on period horror, you know? Well, yeah, this is the thing, because I'd been seeing a lot of rave reviews for the first instalment of Fear Street. But genuinely, it, it was, as I said, it was nothing that I haven't seen before. It was, I mean, if they're going to 
you know, because they've already teased at the driving forces behind this mystery. And I'd be lying if I said I wasn't somewhat intrigued to see how they tie it into the upcoming instalments, the 1978 and 1666 ones. And, you know, they have given vague hints at how they might do that. But just in, in terms of the characterization and in terms of this script overall, there was, nothing, there was nothing about Fear Street that made it very special. And there was nothing about it that I would say made me overly excited for the other ones. I just hope that the second instalment, and, and hopefully the, the second two instalments rather, I just hope that they, they have some more fire in the gut for the audience member. Like, you know, if, if the 1978 one, if that has a real retro kick to it, that say, for example, really really evokes something like Friday the 13th or even the burning, stuff like that. That 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 could be really good fun. That could be something that might make, you know, would really sucker me in to, like, to enjoy the ride in a more pronounced way. So it's, it, it's one of the worst things, this, because the, this initial instalment has just left me quite ambivalent. I didn't hate it at all. I didn't think it sucked. But there, I didn't think there was anything that would make me de... I wouldn't... There's nothing about it that puts me in a discriminatory mood. There's nothing about it that make, is going to make me say to anyone, you must see this because it does something in a particularly novel way or anything because it just doesn't. So, yeah, it's like <laughs> kind of like thumbs horizontal. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's okay. If you did a thumbs up system, thumbs horizontal would have to be part of it. Yeah, yeah because it, we, it wasn't terrible. But it could potentially be, as soon as you're saying it's not terrible, it could potentially be just a little bit of a ropey start to what ends up being, as a three-parter, a fairly decent trilogy. Is there the potential there for for a bit more, do you think? Yeah, I mean, because they showed, the they showed little flash forwards there of the second instalment. And I thought, okay, yeah, that looks kind of cool. I do, you know, I know I did the burning for a So Bad It's Good and I do love the original Friday the 13th. I thought, like, the summer camp thing, the kind of, like, the whole, like, summer camp trajectory, I've always quite enjoyed those in horror films. They always tend to take, um, they always tend to go down quite a very, a fun and daft route, but knowingly, daft, like, adorably daft. In, I know adorably sounds very sort of condescending and dismissive, but I don't actually mean it that way. I think, you know, maybe that one could be a, just a little bit more enjoyable than this because, you know, it's, it, as, a, as a Kickstarter, it's kind of fine. <laughs> I don't really know how else to elucidate the summary of it. Yeah, that's no, fair enough. It's just kind of fine. Kind of fine. It's kind of fine, yeah. That's a quote for the poster. <laughs> yeah, it's just kind of fine. And then second up, we have The God Committee, written and directed by Austin Stark. So this alternates between... November 2014 and December of this year, 2021. And we are introduced to Dr. Andre Boxer, played by the one and only Kelsey Grammer. I do like Kelsey Grammer. I like Kelsey Grammer as well. Kelsey Grammer wakes up and he's in bed next to Jordan Taylor, played by the lovely Julia Stiles. And not only is she played by the lovely Julia Stiles, she's also a doctor and she is Andre Boxer's colleague at the hospital they work at. No, they obviously never listen to the older days. Don't dip your pen in company ink. It never <laughs> fucking ends very well, does it? But, you know, suffice to say they ignored that. Well, it seems that they're having a bit of hanky-panky and some complicated romantic entanglements, but an entanglement because there's some emotional frostiness there. But um, the thing with these two is that that morning they are en route to a committee meeting, the titular committee, which is also comprised of Dr. Gilroy, played by Janine Garofalo, Father Dunbar, Coleman Domingo. He is a ex-attorney turned man of a cloth who still dabbles in legalese and other technical bullshit now and again. And uh, Dr. Alan Lau, played by Peter Kim. And the four of them have come together because they have to adjudicate who is most deserving of a heart transplant that day. I see the God Committee. So they're choosing who yes. lives and who dies. Yes, and there's, right. two, and there's two prospective um, recipients of um, this heart and they basically have to summarise who is most deserving and why. Um, one of the patients, Trip Granger, his father, played by Dan Hedaya, who's always loved Dan Hedaya, he's an old favourite of mine, he is pressuring uh, Dr. Andre Kelsey Grammer to give his son the heart. And what he essentially does is um, 
heavily insinuates that uh, this will be rewarded with handsome bribes within the industry. Dr. Taylor, Julia Stiles, is a little bit more resolutely idealistic than this, whereas Dr. Boxer, he's not exactly um, a wholly unscrupulous and unlikable guy, uh, Dr. Boxer, but he does have a little bit more moral murkiness than Dr. Taylor, which is where a lot of the friction in their romantic slash sexual entanglement comes from. And uh, so it darts back and forth between 2014 and 2021. It's a running dual timeline that deals with the decision that the team make in 2014 versus how it has affected them personally and professionally seven years later in this current year and um, how they're dealing with it and uh, sort of a new dilemma, a, a comparable dilemma that has also reared its head as we find out that also contemporaneously Dr. Andre has not actually been feeling very well. Dr. Taylor, she's become rather sort of burnt out and quite functionary and a bit more bitter during her time going up the hierarchy ladder. So yeah, it's, it's essentially, it's a rumination on moral consequences with the split chronology thing, I suppose to just infuse it with that bit more um, emotional gravitas as to how... Um, so the consequences of those life-changing decisions. Absolutely, yes, and dealing with it seven years apart. Okie dokie. So, the best thing about this film is Kelsey Grammer. That's no surprise, to be quite yeah. honest. Kelsey Grammer as Dr. Andre Boxer, as I said before, he is a man who shows some, at times, troubling moral ambiguity. But it is also no secret that he does have a conscience and he does have principles that may be very hard for people to understand from the outside, but ultimately he's do, he is doing things for a right, for a pragmatic reason, for pragmatic reasons that um, serve something of a wider utilitarian purpose, even though his decisions and his pronouncements can initially come across as self-serving and quite cold. But uh, grammar is the best thing about this film. Everyone else in the cast, they don't grab you as well as he does, unfortunately. I wish that, you know, but Julia Stiles, Coleman Domingo, Garofalo, even Dan Hedaya, who I love, all the rest of them are kind of just very much moving through the moves. See, Kelsey Grammer in his role, I believe him in his performance as Dr. Boxer. He is portraying this guy who progressively has the weight of the world on his shoulders because of decisions that he has made and a sort of endless internal to and fro about whether he made the right decisions and whether he continues to make good decisions now, uh, seven years later, while he's also got his own um, physical illnesses to deal with. I bought Kelsey Grammer as that. Everything else, I hate to say, but it's, it, it feels quite phoned in, especially when you're tackling themes, you're talking about like medical ethics and office politics. And I love dialogue-driven stuff. And that a lot of that is hinted at here, is hinted at in the dialogue. You know, the uh, the ramifications of, you know, make, making this kind of decision. What kind of precedence is it going to set? How will it affect us personally? Because even no matter how impartial and robotic you try to be, you're still human beings making this decision. And it's still going, you would have to be, there would have to be something very, very wrong with you for it to not affect you even in the most minuscule fashion whatsoever, regardless for how well you put on a professional front. So, and it, and it tees at that, but ultimately you take themes such as ethics, potential malpractice, how emotions get in the way of professionalism, especially in the context of a situation this grave and this life-altering for not only the team at hand, but also the friends and family members of uh, people who are, you know, are they going to receive an organ or not? But you take all of that, which is potentially very powerful, and it's kind of pressing it through this conduit of watered-down soap opera predictability, largely mediocre acting, and a lot of the plot developments, as the film goes along, they get more tepid. And, uh, yeah, Kelsey Grammer, while he is good in it, ultimately he can't save it. So um, it's a shame because I was actually quite looking forward to this one. I thought that it had a very interesting premise. And I went, Kelsey Grammer. Well, I love Kelsey Grammer. He's really cool. He always sells really yeah. well. Yeah. I was thought, oh, you know, that, that plot with coupled with Kelsey Grammer, you know, let's have some of that. But yeah, it's, it's that plot with Kelsey Grammer where 
Kelsey Grammer is basically the only one doing any of the work. Mm. <laughs> and everything else, it just it, it falls flat. It doesn't deliver. Honestly, this is like this is like an overwrought episode of Chicago Mid. You know, <laughs> that's essentially what it is. And I mean, the best, the, the, well, the best thing about that is Oliver Platt out of push. But what you're looking at is a much longer episode of something like that. It's, it's just a, a long, long episode of a primetime TV medical drama where they don't really hit at the big, I mean, even though House, like, kind of veers into that territory, they still hit the big guns and they hit it beautifully because Hugh Laurie was bolstered by great performances, but he, because he had so much to deal with and he carried it so beautifully and epically and made the show last the distance. Kelsey Grammer does the best with what he has here, but he's the only one doing the best with what he has. Everything else just becomes flat and uninteresting. They really don't delve into the emotional weight that they could have. And it all just seems very recycled. Like it seems like was heavily recycled material from stuff that's just been done so much better in the past. Stuff that's been done so much more interesting because the, in the, the concept's got so much mileage in it. And as you say, you know, Kelsey Graham is a great casting choice. And it's, a, yeah, and it's a good concept. And I am a sucker for things like moral dilemmas, mm. you know, especially when they're executed well. I love being put in that hot seat of, holy shit, how would you feel if you were in this situation? How would it feel to be burdened with this kind of horrible responsibility where you have got to decide whose life gets saved and why. You know, it's like, uh, you know, it's, I mean, the, the the trolley problem is probably the most perverse conclusion of that, but it's comparable to that. It's like, how do you decide, you know, what leads you to those decisions? Will you be able to live with those decisions? You know, are those, you know, is that decision going to have some sort of domino effect that's positive or negative? All of that is teased at. But um, it's ne it's never actually given any satisfying illumination. But props to Kelsey Grammer because he does very well. Yeah, well, some upsides then at least. Yeah, some upsides there. So yeah, basically two movies this week where the overall consensus is, eh. <laughs> well, this final episode of ours isn't going very well. Well, it's going very honestly, <laughs> which is kind of the point. So. And that's what you listen to us for, right? <clears throat> right? Yeah. <laughs> no, we show films we don't like. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> okay, then. Well, let's see if I can boost the positivity a little bit with a review of this. This is my TV of the Week segment. And this week, I am reviewing Mayor of East Town. Oh, with Kate Winslet. Indeed. Yeah. Yes, this has been getting a lot of hype at Indeed, the moment. Yeah. And um, for reasons that I will go into in a bit. But let's start out with the plot setup, as we always do. As you correctly said, this is Kate Winslet playing the titular mayor, uh, Mary Ann Sheehan. And she is a detective sergeant in Easttown, Pennsylvania. And this opens up with her um, going about her day-to-day -day life as a detective. Quite a small town, Easttown, and it's quite grey and grim, but fairly built up as well. It's like a suburban town for the most part. Lots of woodland surrounding it. And her day-to-day -day duties essentially come down to the average life of a small town US cop. You know, despite the fact that she's the lead detective of the town, most of her day-to-day -day stuff is things like uh, there's an older couple who thinks there might be a, a stalker moving in the alleyway behind their house late at night. Um, she chases after a young guy that is known for using drugs and being a drug dealer in the town. She's generally quite um, down on her job and down on life. It's very heavily implied that Mare is quite heavily depressed and for reasons that I'll get into in a minute. But she's also got a very, very complicated social life. This is one of those small towns where everybody knows each other. So she's living in a house with her mother. Her mother has moved back in to help her take care of her grandson, a grandson of her son who is revealed to be dead. Although uh, later on it's described how that happened and how that affected her. Her daughter's still living with her as well. And her ex-husband has rather selfishly bought the house opposite her. Their two back gardens face each other where she's living. So she's got her ex-husband there who is now with his new partner, happily getting married and having a much better time of it than she is. And so she's got this in internal conflict and um, real stress and strain in her life. Um, her cousin visits quite often, who is the town vicar. And 
Her life is essentially a series of unfortunate events. She is being pulled from pillar to post as she goes around town solving small crimes. Except there's one big one weighing on her mind, which is the disappearance of a young girl a year previously. This case was left unsolved. And as a result, the police station is quite often being protested by this woman's mother and by local residents of the town who think that mayor is and the police department are not doing their job correctly because the case still remains unsolved. We're also introduced to Erin, who is a young teenage girl living in the town, or on the outskirts of it rather, with her father, who's quite abusive towards her and is quite often drunk. Um, she's living with her small one-year-old son. And the father of her son comes to pick him up. They share custody over the weekends. And he's really, really uninterested in her. He's got a new girlfriend now. He's doing his best and picking up the son to try and spend some time with him. But he's refusing to pay for this young boy's ear surgery. He needs tubes inserted medically in his ears to help him out. She keeps asking him for the money. He won't do it. Um, she drops him off one day for the ex-boyfriend to pick him up and gets a torrent of verbal abuse from his new girlfriend um, for essentially she thinks he's been texting him and trying to get back together with him. And so she's living this sort of miserable existence trying to make her, her teenage life work with this young boy. Anyway, one evening we see her go out to the woods to meet up with a bunch of teenagers. They're all getting drunk. They've got campfires. They're having sort of a yearly party out in the cold frigid woods of Pennsylvania when she is suddenly accosted by her ex-boyfriend's girlfriend. And she essentially beats her up to teach her a lesson, say, stay away from my man, he doesn't want anything to do with you. Um, she's thrown to the ground, she's beaten quite badly. This is all filmed by a bunch of teenagers nearby. And she is rescued by Mare's daughter, who also happens to be at this party. She picks her up off the ground, says, oh my God, are you okay? Can I do anything to help you? Do you want to ride home? And Erin just completely blanks her and runs off into the distance. The next morning, it is revealed that Erin's body is found um, strewn across rocks in the local river. Uh, she's been stripped to the waist and she has a bullet hole in the front of her face. So, of course, Mayor is dispatched to investigate. However, because the town is very unhappy with her performance, even though her police chief does sympathise with her, she is given a new partner, a young hotshot called uh, Colin Zabel, played by Evan Peters. And he is attached to the case as well in order to help Mare out and solve this mysterious murder. We all up on the up and up with that one? Yeah. So a lot of characters front-loaded in this one. There's There's some more side characters and things that... I would go further into, but I think that's enough of a setup to give you the, the grasp of basics of it. Um, this is very, very interesting. The main thing to watch here, I mean, first of all, it's really, really character-driven, massively character-driven. It's all about Mayor's relationship with just about everybody in this town. Like I said, it's one of those small towns where absolutely everybody knows each other. So it starts off spreading its characters out far and wide and introducing all these people. And you're trying to keep track of, okay, so that's the cousin and that's her uncle and that's this guy over here who's related to this guy. And it sort of sets out its stage very, very slowly. And then what it does through the course of its seven episode run is gradually pull all these different elements in together so that you see that each one of them has a very large facet to play in the plot. Much more is revealed about these characters' backstories as Mare works her way through this case. Everybody is connected in some sense. So it's very cleverly written in that sense. Really, really pulls it together quite nicely. I got quite big Fargo vibes from this, actually. Oh, okay. Although it's very much not Minnesota. It's not quite the icy, bleak wasteland kind of thing. It's somewhere near it. Imagine a grayer, wetter version of that. Contrasted with these very warm, homely, family kind of interiors. It does a nice thing with playing with warmth. And the outside is very frigid and cold and unforgiving and rough wild woodland and inside is very warm and comforting and family homes and that kind of thing. You're getting all this character development, their little interactions between each other. Who likes who, who hates who, who's got a uh, some sort of hidden motive with that person over there. It's doing all these character drama entanglements that gradually pull together. The real thing to watch here though is Kate Winslet's performance yeah. because it is absolutely transformative. I mean, I've always kind of rated Kate Winslet. I think we all have. She's delivered some fantastic performances in a lot of good films. And yeah, let's be honest, some bad ones as well. But she's always been pretty reliable. And often as like a romantic lead, that kind of thing. 
parts that I wouldn't say are necessarily particularly stretching for an actress to play. This is a stretching part because Mare is gruff. She's um, blunt. She's quite acerbic with the people around her. She's very obviously heavily depressed. There's sort of an insinuation that she's a bit of an alcoholic. She's forever drinking beer. She eats quite sloppily. She walks with sort of a, a downbeat swagger. And there's all these little character inflections and things that you think, I didn't know Kate Winslet could do that. I mean, her American accent as well, by the way, is, to my British ears anyway, absolutely pitch perfect. And this is quite a, I was doing some research on this earlier, this is quite a difficult accent to do. That East Coast small town thing is really, really distinct. And there's a lot of subtlety in the way words are pronounced. There's a real sort of a, a, a timbre to it that, is really, really difficult for people to nail. In fact, people from this sort of area famously regard it as a difficult accent to do. Kate Winslet nails it absolutely. It's so transformative, in fact, that you stop seeing Kate Winslet within the first two minutes. In fact, I'm I'm almost certain a lot of people have watched this without realizing it was Kate Winslet. I mean, like I said, I've always rated her as an actress. Um, I didn't know she was capable of being a chameleon. And it really is, it's chameleonic, if that is even a word. It's it a is. chameleonic performance. In this, you know, the best tradition, it's Gary Oldman-esque. It's Daniel Day-Lewis-esque. You don't see Kate Winslet, you see Mare. And it's through the strength of that performance and the strength of the writing that this show really, really comes together. First episode I found to be a bit slow. The rest of them, I mean, I gobbled all of this up in two sessions. Because it really does, once it's set out all its characters and you've got a good grasp of who's doing what to who, it pulls together in a really neat and tapestry-like kind of way. There is a bit of a twist and a reveal at the end that I thought was maybe a little bit hokey, although it's fine enough. You can buy it well enough. It seemed like a twist that was there for the purpose of being a twist. But it sells decently enough. The reason why you can sort of forgive that is because it's so good at handling its narrative and so good at handling its characters. You almost don't care that the twist's a bit hokey because you've really got involved with these people's lives. It feels realistic. It feels gritty. It feels, without ever going too far into the the kitchen sink drama misery, there's nice moments of levity and there's nice, you know, Mare's interaction with her mother, who's a bit of an old lush, you know, and there's some nice moments of comedy that come through that. And there's just a real believability to it. You feel a warmth towards these characters. You feel like they're real people. They're rounded. They're well-developed. They're, they've got interactions with each other that seem entirely feasible. There's lots of little strands that, like I said, I haven't mentioned because it would just sort of clutter the review. But this is a really nuanced and subtle piece of work. And it's got some really thrilling action sequences as well that you don't expect. I mean, I'll just call them action sequences is maybe overdoing it a little bit. But when things kick off, it's got a real nice usage of its camera. It's got a nice way of building tension and pulling back from it. And there's there's just a lot of tone changes in this that are real quality. It's got a real, I mean, it's an HBO production. We expect, you know, quality from HBO. Oh, yeah, yeah. But this is them doing small town character drama in the vein of Fargo and pulling it off. But like I said, you know, the primary thing that I want to get across, you need to see this, not just because the narrative is well written, which it is, but Kate Winslet has now, it's a career redefining performance. It's a bit like the McConaughey's, you know, the whole Matthew McConaughey thing. Yeah. Where everyone sort of wrote him off as being the romantic lead, crossing his arms on the front of, you know, romantic movie posters, you know, him back to back with somebody in a white background going, you won't believe how many girls this guy's got on the go. <laughs> and then he, he came through and proved that actually underneath he is an amazing character actor. This is Kate Winslet doing very much the same thing. I'd like to see more of it. I mean, I've got a feeling that this is self-contained. The way it wraps up at the end, it kind of feels like all of these characters now, you couldn't really do it again because it's so relying on everybody in this town being involved in some sense. For them to be all involved in another mystery of this type would be maybe stretching it in the way EastEnders does. You know what I mean? I mean nobody can have this much misery in their lives. Yeah. Purely. <laughs> but even though there's quite a lot of misery in the show, it's not a miserable experience to watch. There's a real authenticity that comes through it. There's a real attention to detail that suggests that everything has been done with a huge amount of research and a huge amount of respect and nuance and subtlety towards people that live in these areas. It's a really fabulous, fabulous piece of work, actually. I enjoyed it a lot. Awesome. 
Yeah, that sounds fucking good, man. Yeah, just I mean, watch it for that Kate Winslet performance alone and let that draw you in and guide you through. And I, I think you can't go wrong with it. Really. I'd love to see more of it, but another part of me thinks that would just be stretching it too far. You know what, I'm, you know what I mean by that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, no, um, I know a few people who have watched it and they've all they've given it is commendation. Yeah, commendation off commendations. So. Don't really have a critique other than maybe the slowness of the first episode, but it needs to set out its stall in that way for everything else to work further on that point. Sweet. And the acting, yeah. it's not just Kate Winslet as well as fabulous performances from everybody involved. It's just, it's nicely done. Very, very nicely done. Um, second thing I want to talk about, I haven't done a docuseries in a while. <laughs> so guess what? It's Andy's docuseries review, The Revenge. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> this is up on Netflix at the moment And this is called Sophie A Murder in West Cork Well in Ireland In Ireland indeed oh, okay. Yes So for those unfamiliar with Ireland's geography uh, Cork is towards the bottom of the island of Ireland And if you think about sort of towards the bottom left You'd be somewhere near it This covers the events uh, in the small town of Skull In West Cork there was known for being um, a bit of a sort of hippie community. A lot of people living in Skull were not from Ireland originally. It was known as sort of a bit of a bolt hole and a retreat for hippies, um, artistic types, writers, that sort of thing. Fucking unwashed English degenerates. That's the one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, not just English either, because um, this explores the, the horrible events that happened to Sophie Toscan Duplantier, who was, as you can tell from my accent, French. Um, she was the wife of a very successful French film producer. And they had sort of a quite a distant relationship. And she bought herself a small farmhouse uh, just outside the town of Skull and began to uh, ingratiate herself with the community there. She made friends. She went to the local pub. Everybody kind of knew her. It's one of those small towns where everybody gets to know each other eventually. There's outsiders and there's insiders, but everybody bonds together. Quite a nice existence. Until, um, unfortunately, her body was found on a country lane just outside of her house, um, stuck in a briar patch, murdered absolutely brutally. And so the investigation began as to what happened to this. Yeah, the skull is one of those places where it was the first murder in living memory. It was known for being a peaceful, artistic, vibrant kind of small Irish town by the, by the sea. You know, there's this sort of thing just didn't happen. It absolutely shocked the community. Um, it shocked the French press as well, who got involved very, very quickly. And the Irish press, of course, including a local journalist called Ian Bailey, who began to, a lot of journalists from all over the world started to descend on Skull to cover this story. And Ian Bailey put himself in the position of being the local journalist, the guy with his, his finger on the pulse of what was happening in the community. And he started sort of leading these stories, writing opinion pieces for newspaper. In general, it was sort of a red letter day for him because all of a sudden, you know, he'd moved out to this small town to focus on his writing. And now he had one of the biggest stories in the world at this time on his doorstep. Until he became suspect number one in the murder investigation. Wow. Okay. <laughs> There's your twist. Ian Bailey is a very, very interesting character indeed. And this docuseries, of which it's got three parts, very quickly becomes an examination of Ian Bailey's life. Um, he's known as being a local eccentric, to put it somewhat mildly. Um, it's also got to this point now where there are so many rumours about him. And the fact he still lives in the town. There's so many rumours about him. No one can really separate fact from fiction. There's discussion about him being seen running naked on a full moon and howling at the moon. In a, uh, in a in, you know, There's a reference to the original meaning of lunatic. You know, he was known for going into local pubs and uh, calling attention to the room, getting everyone to fall silent and then reciting his own very bad poetry. He's very much, uh, he's interviewed quite a lot in this and there's a real arrogance to the man. But the documentary as the investigation eventually did, leaves it kind of open as to whether he actually had anything to do with this horrible event or not. And that is the key to why this piece is interesting. It's an unsolved case. I'm not really giving any spoilers away by saying that. You can get that from the, the first episode. But it is very, very intriguing as to how it lets you make your own mind up. It presents the evidence against him, of which there is quite a lot, and the evidence for him, as in not being involved in the murder, of which there is somewhat less. But it does leave it in such a way that it actually, it almost makes you feel sorry for this guy, whether he did it or whether he didn't. He's a real interesting character 
a dark, deep and flawed man. Whether he's a murderer or not is up for everybody else to decide. Essentially, this is really, really open-ended. However, being three episodes long, it's very tight as well. As we said at the start of this podcast, tight like a tiger. Tight like a tiger. Three episodes, quite punchy, does what it needs to do, gets in and out, doesn't let the mystery hang too long, gets its evidence nicely proportioned in terms of how it's laid out across those three episodes. It does go for that sort of trick ending kind of thing where you go, well, I must watch the next one. But it's not overly sensational as a lot of these Netflix documentaries seem to be. It's an interesting tale. It's a compelling tale. Its interviews with the people of this small town are actually quite sensitive and well done. Um, there's, there's a tendency sometimes when they, you do these sort of documentaries to kind of play up these characters in a way that makes them caricatures rather than real people. Whereas this resists going down that line, which I liked quite a lot. It's quite grim and bleak in places. There's a weird supernatural element at one point. Really? Yeah, which is really bizarre. The, it, the documentary only sort of talks about it for five minutes and then moves on. And again, I guess kind of lets you make your own mind up on that one. Is it, is, it, is it a jarring insertion? No, it's not jarring. It's just a, a kooky part of the story that makes it even weirder. Whether you believe in the supernatural stuff or not, it's kind of ever so slightly haunting, but obviously I'm not going to go into what it is. But as Netflix documentaries go, I mean, there's a lot of good ones out there. I think this one's very successful. I think it could easily be spread out into five or six episodes and there wouldn't be enough... It wouldn't be nearly as effective as a piece. And I'm looking at you, Discovery Plus, for doing that sort of thing. Making eight episodes out of something that you could easily knock out in two or three just to lead viewers down the garden path irritates me quite a lot. And I believe it irritates a lot of audiences as Indeed, well. Indeed, yeah. This doesn't do that. It's got a, a tight story to tell. It makes you really sympathize. I mean, this poor woman's family, her son at the time was only a teenager, um, an only child. He's obviously been left without his mother. There's a lot of interviews with her aunt as well and the, the bereavement of this family, her older parents that are now really in their twilight years and still don't have a satisfying ending to this case. It sets out its stall really, really nicely. It lets the audience make up its own mind. It's beautifully well shot and it's very, very well judged. So uh, a good pick, that one. It's What a, year a did piece. this um, killing take place? So this is the early 90s. Early 90s, yeah. yeah. Uh, but the investigation goes on to this day. And Fuck. That might sound like a bit of a giveaway, but actually the fact that it's so open is the interesting part of the tale. There's a lot of ifs, buts, and maybes, and they're interesting to explore, and it does a real good job of that. Well, I mean, I like stuff like, you know, uh, the jinx making a murderer and stuff like that. So, you know, there's sort of... Uh... And of course, your Irish heritage as well. There's, there's a, a nice depiction of uh, of Ireland and the way the Irish police work, and sometimes effectively and sometimes not. You know, the, the Garda. Garda. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's uh, I find it a really, really interesting and compelling piece of work, which is the best thing you can say about a docu series, I think. Yeah, I'm 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 intrigued. I am heavily intrigued. I must admit, I should, and you see, it's three parts. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. quite easily done in an evening, and I would I would recommend actually. It's, it's one of those ones. Once you watched episode one, you're definitely going to watch two and three. It pulls you down the garden path quite nicely. Cool. Yeah, I'll have to check that one out, man. Okay, then. Well, let's finish off with some trivia for this week. I thought I'd do some trivia on R.L. Stein. R.L. Stein. The writer of Fear Street and many, many other books, most famously Goosebumps. Goosebumps, yeah. Let's have some R.L. Stein trivia, shall we? Go on, then. Style was born on October 8th, 1943 in Columbus, Ohio, the son of Louis Stein, a shipping clerk. He began writing at age nine when he found a typewriter in his attic, subsequently beginning to type stories and joke books. According to the documentary Tales from the Crypt, from comic books to television, R.L. Stein said that he remembered reading the Tales from the Crypt comic books when he was young and credited as one of his inspirations. In 1989, Stein started writing Fear Street books. Before launching the Goosebumps series, Stein authored three humorous science fiction books in the Space Cadet series titled Jerks in Training, Bozos on Patrol, and Losers in Space. <laughs> <laughs> I really need to read those on their titles alone. <laughs> Losers in space. Losers in space, yeah. R.L. <laughs> Stein's full name is Robert Lawrence Stein. When I was a joke book writer, he says, I was known as Jovial Bob Stein. When I started writing horror, I decided to use my initials because they sounded more serious. It does, like, when I first uh, saw his name adorning a Goosebumps book, it said, like, written by R.L. Stein. I thought, that does have a creepy ring to it. Yeah, it is you a know? bit more horror, isn't it? It was, good, it was a good decision. I do quite like Jovial Bob Stein as a, uh, <laughs> <laughs> a humour writer. I think it's kind of good. 
Before his own work took off in the 1990s, Stein spent the 1980s working on other people's projects. The various projects he was involved with included a choose-your-own-adventure sort of book series for such franchises as Indiana Jones, James Bond, and G.I. Joe. He also developed a trading card series called Zero Heroes and was involved in developing colouring books for Micey Mouse and Bullwinkle. Yeah. Storied career then. Yeah, I saw an interview with him earlier where he was saying uh, he really liked doing the colouring books in particular because you only had to write one sentence per page. <laughs> it's like easiest gig in the world. Really. Quid <laughs> in, man. For a yeah. writer, that's just, you know, yeah. you can knock out 10 of those in a day. Fucking jammy boss. <laughs> Speaking of his um, prolificness, actually, of the original Goosebumps series, the first one was Welcome to Dead House, published in July 1992. The final one was Monster Blood 4, released in December 1997. In total, there were 62 books released as part of the original Goosebumps series, and it only took Stein five years to write them all. Wow. 62 books in five years. I mean, admittedly, they are quite slim books, but still, that's a lot of different ideas to get off the table. Yeah. Really, really prolific. He earned his cross. In 1996, Stein's income from his novels was a whopping $41 million. Stein also held the record of best-selling American author for three years in a row. That's higher than Stephen King, Higher than Danielle Steele and higher than James Patterson. So very, very lucrative, those, uh, those horror books. Higher than Stephen a... King. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're good friends, actually, Stephen King and uh, R.L. Stein. I imagine they probably would have been. Apparently, yeah. Stephen King said to him once, uh, I can't write horror books about amusement parks anymore because you've used up all the plots. <laughs> <laughs> you've done so many of them. There's literally, there is no more horror left in amusement parks. Yeah, it's true enough. Stein has also written the Nightmare Room series, the Mostly Ghostly series, the Fear Street series, and the Rotten School series. Interestingly, Stein wrote his Fear Street books for a female audience. Much to his surprise, however, the books were embraced in equal measure by boys and girls. Did you get anything, any of that from the film? Was there any sort of, maybe a, a push towards more of a like female-focused narrative or something like that? Yeah, I mean Michael. that. I mean, I, I, yeah, I guess, I guess that comes across, but it's not in a way that's um, that intention is not conspicuous mm. in a way that you're thinking like, oh, you know, there he was obviously attempting, or you know, even the creators of the film, they were obviously attempting to do that. So I don't think they were. Sure. So yeah, I mean, that's cool. Yeah. For a guy who writes so much horror fiction, Steiner stated that he's only got one phobia. He's apparently terrified of jumping into water making him uneasy around swimming pools. He's a hydrophobe. Mm. Well, Apparently it's the, uh, the act of jumping in. He's okay with getting into water as long as he goes slowly down a ladder. But the act of jumping in terrifies him. Fair enough. <laughs> well, Even if, he, if it's really, really deep yeah. and, you, and you can see the bottom. One of these interviews I was reading earlier is like, there's something wrong with my brain because when I go to watch horror movies and things like that, the audience is screaming. I'm the only one laughing. Because I just find it, there's something broken in me because I just find it really, really funny. He said um, something about It Follows. He's like, I love that film. It Follows is great, but I was just laughing my ass off the whole time. I just thought it was really funny. He's a crazy boss. (laughs) (laughs) One of the other nice things doing my research on this was um, quite a few people were saying how nice he was. And somebody said, um, even R.L. Stein's greatest enemy would say his biggest flaw was being too nice. Apparently he's just a really, really lovely dude. (laughs) And I'll finish off with a quote from him here. Stein once said, In the early days, my wife Jane and I collaborated on funny books for kids, but we work so differently. I go in order, starting in the beginning, and Jane would sometimes write something in the middle, then write an ending, then go back. We fought about it, and she locked me in a closet and left the apartment. After that, we decided not to collaborate. (laughs) (laughs) At least you can laugh about it. Yeah, you know, nothing ventured, nothing gained. You don't know until you try. See, those are bullshit platitudes. Yeah, Yeah, that's true. true. (laughs) Okay, then that brings us to the end of our free podcast this week. Thank you so much for listening. We're going to go and record the premium one now. Um, This week, off the back of the anniversary of the release of Terminator 2 Judgment Day, we decided we were going to do our robots. Yeah. Big, scary robots metal death things. machines in film, or sometimes not death machines, but robots in film. Andrew, sorry, Andrew, Andrew. Andrew, you sounded like my dad then. <laughs> Androids, 
cyborgs, general AI, thing, there are things that come under the banner of robots. We've got a few things here that are, you know, some pretty cool pickings. I yeah, think, so. we're going to have a discussion about the Terminator films as well, what made them so great. And just uh, generally, you know, Metal Mechanoid Mayhem, I suppose. That's probably a good title for it. I'll write that down somewhere. Spot on, yeah. <laughs> good stuff, man. But if you're interested in hearing any of that and also lots of our other uh, reviews and rants, et cetera, et cetera, of our premium content, Please do check out Cinementalist.com for a link to our Patreon page. You can follow us on Twitter at Cinementalcast. You can follow Liam at... Liam at the movies at Wacko Jacko's Flicks. And uh, yeah, that's the end of... Well, this better not be our final episode, mate. I think we better keep going, you know, all all things being willing. Why did we say it might potentially be our final episode again? Oh, because the whole COVID thing, you know. Essentially, oh, we, yeah, we were yeah. joking about whether we'd be dead before the next one, which I guess is kind of dark. But uh, we'll find a way. We're famous for it, I suppose. We'll find yeah. a way around that. Don't worry. Yeah. While we're still breathing, <laughs> there will be the sentimentalist podcast. <laughs> Okie dokie. Well, hope to see you guys on the premium one, if not free one, next week. Thank you, people. Take it easy, guys. 